Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. And today we're going to hear from Deborah Kane. She's a conservator with the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. And she's going to give us an idea of how this material is preserved and what goes into that. There's a lot that goes into this, actually. And what's really interesting about talking to Deborah is that they're coming up with cutting-edge techniques that are actually elegantly simple. I really like how they're dealing with all this stuff. So without any further ado, let's get to Deborah. My name is Deborah Kane. I am currently the Staffordshire Horde Conservation Project Manager. I've worked on a wide range of materials. I started primarily on organic materials, but found in my career that obviously organics are usually fixed to inorganics. So generally over my career I've switched from organics to inorganics and found myself in a lucky position here at Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery to be one of the in-house permanent conservators when the Staffordshire Hoard was found and I was in the perfect position to start the project and launch it through. So how did that actually begin, uh, your involvement with the Hoard? Well, I think you've heard that it was, it was kept quite a, a secret process because obviously it's a gold hoard find and um, quite important, or everyone thought it was even from the beginning. So it was about two weeks in. Uh, before I rumbled there was something going on because everyone was being a little bit too quiet in the uh, corridor and in the departments and also they needed somebody to pack this newly found collection um, to potentially go down to the British Museum. So what was your first impression when when you were brought in and you started seeing these objects? Uh, Well initially the finds liaison officer just said oh this is the find and he got out one gold pommel cap I was like, oh, that's really pretty, because it was one where there was not much soil left on it. I was like, oh, that's, that's lovely, that's, the finder's cleaned it, that's, wow, that's great. And then he went, and the other 20 Tupperware boxes there, they're full of stuff as well, and that's when we went, okay, this is a slightly bigger job than we thought it was. And, and quite exciting, because at the time, um, the finder's liaison officer also said, you know, I think this is comparable date to Sutton Who. And because that's the find that everyone knows, you just think, wow, this is going to be great. And, uh, and at that point, the finds liaison officer and I decided that it would be useful to photograph all of those pieces as well. So we started to photograph them with our in-house photographer. And at that point, when you're laying everything out and you just start to see um, row upon row of gold and it's all pommel caps, um, sword fittings, it's just wow to see all the gold and then you're just thinking hmm, this looks like lots of swords maybe there's about 60 swords here hmm, that's interesting and then of course you know the whole Sutton Who link it's the same sort of period some of it's the same quality you're just thinking this is going to be really important to the history of um, archaeology in this time frame on, on the scale of intricacy and wealth are these pommel caps similar to the one that we found in Sutton Hoo? I would say um, a small percentage of the same quality, which is top quality, the filigree and the cloisonne. Um, Others are of varying quality, but they have such a huge interest with the type of pattern and style you start to see, which has not been seen in the finds before, because a lot of the finds, obviously apart from Sutton Hoo, have been finding one or two pommel caps. And they've all been similar, whereas the collection here has such a range of patterns and styles starting to appear out of it, that's possibly even more exciting. Now, your particular involvement with the Horde is conservation and restoration. 
Can you explain to the audience what exactly conservation and restoration is and what you do? Yeah, conservation and restoration is an area where we make sure objects are cared for in the correct way. And some of that can be making sure that the objects are clean, so removing any dirt or dust from a standard museum object or with archaeology objects, soil. And what you're doing is removing the dirt to a level where you reach the original surface and you do no more. The object is stabilised and shown as it is. With restoration, it generally means you're adding something back into the object so that you can actually appreciate it. A good example probably is um, a damaged ceramic. You can rebuild that, but there might be a section missing. So it makes it quite hard to appreciate it, so you would restore that so that you could see the whole shape of a ceramic. Whereas with some of these archaeological pieces, if there's a little bit missing or it's bent, that's the way it stays. We're just revealing and stabilising the surface that we see and find. Stabilising is something that's interested me because that's come up several times. Simply removing the dirt, I mean, obviously, uh, gold isn't going to oxidise like iron would. But what do you need to do to ensure that the other materials within these artefacts don't break down, they stay the way they are for, for our generation and future generations? Yeah, we're mainly dealing with gold objects here, but we have got silver objects. And also the gold has some alloys of copper and silver within it. Um, So what we're trying to do is make sure that the environment that we keep the objects in once we've cleaned them and brought them out of the soil is stable. So we tend to keep it at a slightly drier temperature and keep the humidity at a lower level. So basically making sure there's not a lot of moisture around which could start a corrosion or a tarnish process. So we tend to keep it slightly drier than we would the majority of our objects and that helps the metals to be stable and remain stable. With some of the copper components, we'll find that the copper has completely corroded and become a mineral again, so we're just looking at a green mineral. So occasionally we'll have to add a consolidant to that to hold it in place, and a consolidant is effectively a very runny adhesive. Um, We use conservation-grade ones that have been tested by scientists so that they don't degrade or go yellow, and we would just run a small uh, amount of consolidant over the surface of the copper corrosion to just hold that in position. Many times that people visit museums, they see signs saying no flash photography and things like that. Does that play a role in how some of these objects break down? And if so, how does that happen? Um, Light in general is a problem to the decay of objects, all objects. And that's whether that's visible light or UV light. UV is much more damaging. It accelerates the rate of decay. And all objects can be damaged. Uh, A lot of organic materials, textiles, you'll see them fade. Um, Wooden objects, again, you can see fading, but it deteriorates adhesives as well. And with metals, what it can do is create an environment where you can get a little bit of heat build-up sometimes, but also if there's other materials around that, it will cause a, a quicker breakdown of them. So light is bad, and we try and reduce light levels, but for metals, it's less so. And certainly with flash photography, in the early days of conservation, it was felt that such a high impulse of light could cause a problem to the objects. I think subsequently now, that's considered less of a problem with the general light levels that we can get. And sometimes flash photography is now, people are asked not to do it because it actually interferes with people's enjoyment of the objects 
rather than necessarily damaging the object because you're busy trying to look at something and there's just flashes going off all around you. Now, something else that you brought up while you were describing what you do is is the restoration and, and figuring out how things put together. Use the example of the ceramics. One of the things that's interesting about this find is that there are just so many pieces. There are over 3,000 pieces, but there might only be a couple hundred objects. Will your team be involved in trying to figure out how all those little pieces come together? Absolutely. The conservation team at the moment are the team who have most access to the collection because we're cleaning it. Now, as we clean and remove the soil, you're looking at these objects for up to 20 hours, so they just start to imprint on your brain. We also have created a picture book of everything. Um, So as we go, we sometimes get a trigger of a memory of a previous object, and we go, we've seen that pattern before. And we go back and we look through our picture book and go, yeah, it was that one we cleaned that three weeks ago. That looks like it might be part of the same suite. Or occasionally we're working on a batch of 30 objects and between three of us, or when we have an intern, four or five of us, we find that we're all working on different objects. But when we look at each other's, we think, hmm, the back end of yours looks like it has a fitting that fits the back end of mine. And that's how the mystery object came together. Three individual people worked on different parts, but we all got together and looked at what we're doing and went, they look like they all fit. So... Within our work, we can sometimes come across the fittings straight away. But what we'd hope to happen is that all the pieces would come together again once the majority have been cleaned and um, the surface revealed. And the researchers and the specialists and the conservation team all come together and you almost have like two days where you're just scanning everything and going, that's a sweep, that's a sweep, and bring it, bring it all together en masse so you can start to see the mass of objects, as you say, come down to maybe 40 objects made up of many parts. It's almost entirely done by human eye rather than computer modelling and things like that. All done by human at the moment, yeah. I mean, we talked about, um, wouldn't it be great to have a computer programme with all the tiny fragments that could just scan it and it would be like a jigsaw Mm-hmm. programming where it'd look for edges and just bring them together now there probably is something out there probably nasa probably have invented something like that but it's beyond the financial capabilities and possibly the interest and the need to move it into the historical side yet but we did think about it but we're like mm, we'll just go with i so in comparison with something who how deep into the staffordshire horde are we and how much more uh, work do you think we have before we get to start to have the same understanding that we do of Sun Hu? In some respects, we're, we're quicker into it with this project because it's, although there's a lot of objects, it's a very defined find, even though we don't understand it, whereas Sun Hu is such a huge grave site. So there's always a lot to keep going back to. So I think in some respects, with the conservation and the cleaning of the objects that's been done to date and the work that we're doing with the British Museum... We've learned quite a lot quite quickly, as in, this is quite important. There's lots of styles we've never seen here before. Hmm, we've got a lot of silver and gold together. So a lot of questions have come up. There's another two years of research work just starting now, so the researchers are really kicking in. So in total, that will give us four years. And I think, really, you're looking at an average of five years to get the basic answers out. But with some of the objects, with our mystery objects, 
if it doesn't become clear what it is, it will remain a mystery object until maybe another dig reveals something similar or some research comes up at a later date. So I reckon within five years of being, you know, say we're two in now, so nearly halfway, I think there'll be some good work come out of it and some interesting work. When I was up at Stoke-on-Trent and I was looking at the Potteries Museum and, and the objects they had there, I noticed that a lot of the objects had dirt still on them. So clearly we're still very much in the middle of cleaning them up so you can see what's on there and making sure that they're preserved. Can you walk us through step-by-step step the process that's involved with that? Yeah, um, you're right. There are still a lot of pieces with soil on them and you'll find that they are on display uh, because people are interested in seeing them sort of before and after, actually. So that's, that's been good for exhibitions. But what we do with them, when an object comes to us, the first thing we do is look at it. As a conservator, you kind of study it to make sure you understand what you're dealing with. You might carefully turn it over if you think it's strong enough to be turned over. Are we dealing with the same pattern front and back? So basically, we're studying the object. We would then take photographs ourselves of the condition of the object as we find it and we document what we've just discovered, what we think. We describe it, the length of it, we measure it, we weigh it with the soil on and we'll say what condition we think it's in. If we think it's very fragile, at one end, take care, uh, looks as though it may have garnets in it, depending on what level of soil coverage. So we do all our description, we do our photographs and then... That's given us time to think in our minds, with all our experience, how am I going to start to clean that? And then we start the actual practical conservation, all of which is done under the microscope because the objects are small in themselves, a couple of inches, and the filigree work within that, even smaller. So we're working under the microscope and we're using a range of tools. Mainly we're using natural thorns held in a pin vise. And we work through the soil from top to bottom, almost like a little mini archaeological dig on the surface of the object because we're looking for potential organic material within that soil. We may have a loose garnet sat within that soil. So we've been very careful excavating down to the base layer of our object. We're using natural thorns because they have a great point to them. And depending on what thorn we have, some are very hard and you can work away without it blunting too much. Others are much more flexible and great for getting into corners. We also use the thorns because we do have student and internship placements with us, and not all trainees are at the same level of experience, so the thorn allows them to participate with our project without the potential of damaging the object because you have to try really hard with a natural thorn to damage a piece of gold, which can be damaged quite easily. Because normally the tools that we would use would be steel. We use scalpels, we use um, dental tools that we work um, to the right edges that we need, and we use steel pins. So the experienced conservators, when they need to, move on to the metal tools, but generally the thorns are working exceptionally well to get the soil off. So once we've finished cleaning the object, we then document everything again. So we're describing what we see, what we've found... We will then take after photographs, so we have before and afters. We will also have taken um, photographs during the cleaning process because people find it interesting to see the processes that, that we go through. So once all the documentation is done again, we have our cleaned object. 
We then go on and um, carry out some basic metal analysis with our XRF machine, X-ray fluorescence. So basically, we bob it in the machine, it fires X-rays at it, uh, they excite the particles within the object, some are absorbed, some are re-emitted, the machine collects those and gives us a spectra, and it tells us it's got gold, and it will tell us sometimes it has a certain amount of silver in, a certain amount of copper in. Um, so that's given us a initial analysis of the gold. But further analysis has been carried out by the British Museum on that as well, so as our partner. Who came up with the idea of using the thorns? That's, that's a wonderfully simple solution to a complex problem. Um, yes, yeah, so I have to say it's myself and my colleague here, Jane, at the museum. We were just thinking, what could we get interns to use that's not steel? And often we use in part of our toolkit porcupine quills as well, but they're so big by comparison of the objects we're working on. So we're like, we just need something pointy, but on a smaller scale. And I think Jane said, didn't they used to use some kind of thorn as a record needle on old shellac 45s? And we were like, yeah, thorns, that's it. And basically put an email out around the museum and to the friends of the museum saying, does anybody have any thorns in their garden? And if they do, could they bring in a selection, which they did, and we've had blackthorn, hawthorn, berberis, pyracanthus, and that tends to be the range that we use. So we're very lucky we have a ready supply that comes into us from people's gardens as so well. So this is a groundbreaking method that you and your colleague have come up with then? Uh, yes, in principle, yes. We've found another organic natural material that could be used to help clean a product. And I have to say, with a lot of the students and the interns that we've had, they've gone away and taken that process back to their their colleges or their universities or their labs and gone, this is a great tool to use in in any kind of conservation. That's fantastic. And the selection of thorns that you have are pretty much based upon what your co-workers had in their gardens. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. (laughs) That's wonderful. Yeah. So when you're using those thorns, obviously they are organic, how do you make sure that there's there's no contamination? Because... For example, uh, I was allowed to, uh, to handle a 6th century dress fitting and I had to wear the purple gloves and it looked like I was in Warehouse 13. And the reason for that was because there was a fear of any organics on me contaminating the object. So when you're working with natural objects like that, how do you, how do you prevent that? Yeah, um, that's a very good question and something that we sort of mulled over. And I think generally we feel that it could be difficult because it is organic material and traces of the thorn will probably no doubt get left with the soil. But the thing that we will do is we will always keep back a small vial. That's one thing I forgot to say is when we take the soil off, we'll keep that and put them in little vials and mark them up as front, back, side, inside or outside. We will keep a vial of each of the different type of thorns that we've used. And what I, I believe tends to happen in science and analysis is when they run analysis, if they know... What they're looking for is a background or a material to subtract from it. If you give them a sample of that, they run that analysis and then they can just remove that spectra or that data out of the one for the object. So they would be able to remove um, that information knowing that you'd put it in there. Now, another thing that you brought up while you were speaking about how conservation is, is being done was the presence of adhesives. Obviously, they don't have anything like epoxy or superglue. What sort of adhesives were they using, and 
is there any way that we can look at those adhesives to find potentially organics in there? Um, yeah, we there are um, as we say adhesives or um, maybe fillers might be a, a better word because it's a it's a material that sits behind the foil which the garnet sits on. So it's kind of like partially packing out material but partially holding things in situ. And again, the British Museum have got some samples from us and they are running analysis. And they feel from initial, literally just cursory looking at this, that it may be similar to other paste that they've analysed in the past, which means there's probably some organic material in there, maybe like a crushed shell. They even sometimes say like brick dust to help us understand what a packing material might be. And then often a natural resin, like a tree resin might be used or a natural wax, and sometimes a combination of all of those materials mixed in. So that's, again, one of the reasons why when we remove the soil, we tend to try and do it always dry, but occasionally we'll have to add a small amount of moisture to to soften the soil where it's very compacted. But what we don't want to do is allow a lot of moisture to run into an object, like the cloisonne pieces, because the water could creep down past the garnets, under the foils, and start to destroy this paste or adhesive behind. So, again, that's why we're very careful and, and do everything at such a slow pace. So how do you apply the, the water? Is it is something as simple as a Q-tip? Or? Um, yeah, sometimes a Q-tip, but we make our own, so they're, they're minute as well. Or just a very small brush. So we load the brush up, and then you literally dab it on a piece of tissue, so most of the moisture goes, and then you can dab that onto the soil and and again once you started working on them you get a feel for how much moisture you can add and can't add and you may find um, that you're working on a piece of gold filigree so literally it's all gold rather than garnet so you might feel that it's safer to apply a little bit more moisture with filigree for example uh, the horse or the seahorse we're not sure which it is at this point there's so much filigree there and it's so delicate and so tightly compact and yet when, when I was looking at it at the Potteries Museum, it's brilliant. It's, it's sparkling, it's shiny. How do you clean it and how do you polish the surfaces so they are as brilliant as we've seen that they can be uh, here at BMAG and also at the Potteries Museum? Oh, well, certainly cleaning the filigree, it's our magic thorns under the microscope and you work around it as much as you can. But then you'll find this tiny levels of soil right into the sort of undercuts of the filigree. So we'll use a range of brushes, some like squirrel hair brushes, so they're very soft, some, you know, man-made fibres. And we have different lengths and we trim the brushes, so sometimes they're a bit stubbier, sometimes they're longer, so they're gentler. And we, again, we use a range of brushes and we'll just work in and around with the brushes. Now, sometimes we might find we'll wet out the end of the brush because as you run that along, it dissolves the soil, picks it up onto the brush pillory action and draws it away so again it's just very painstaking but if you look at some of them under the microscope you'll still see that there's trace soil still within some of the objects you just can't get it off probably without soaking the object and at the moment we don't want to soak or wash the objects so you'll still see a little bit of soil there as far as the gleam on the gold we're not actually doing anything to polish or enhance the surfaces at the moment you're basically seeing as we find them so some of them as soon as you just take the soil off they just sparkle others are a little bit duller and some have some tarnish to them again probably depending on the amount of alloy that they have in them but basically what you see is what's 
literally revealed under the soil. Now you mentioned that on occasion you'll use brushes and it'll pull some of that soil out through capillary action. Is there any method that you use to preserve that soil that's pulled out of the brushes or is that something that is generally lost? Um, On the whole, by that point, it's such a small amount of the soil, it's probably generally lost. However, obviously we do have to re-clean our brush before we would go back in for the next level of cleaning. What we do is we have a little bit of white you know, absorbent tissue and we do tend to block the brush on that so you get the little soil deposits on that. So in theory we could keep our little blotters but we feel that we have enough of the soil content that there's probably more than enough for analysis at future date and it's such a small amount and we're not seeing any organics or any residue. We've prob- if there is anything we've already got that off the surface so we allow that to disappear. Now, when you're using your thorns, obviously they're flexible. And my experience with anything flexible when I'm working on something light is that there's a bit of a flinging action. What do you do to control the soil just flinging across the room or off the table? You do get a little bit of a fling pattern. But again, the technique of removing the soil, it's almost like cleaving the soil off. So you'll take your thorn and you'll go towards the edge of a section of soil and you'll just sort of almost push it downwards so a crack appears and a bit of the soil just cleaves away and you kind of work your way back like that so it, it sort of more falls away than pings however you always do get a bit of pinging it's just inevitable and what we tend to do is when we're working under the microscope we have a larger piece of white like blotting tissue on top of that we have a smaller square of plastazote, which is the support the object while we're handling it and turning it to clean it and then on top of the plastidote we have a piece of the thin acid-free tissue that we use in the museums and we find that the soil ping or fling factor we've worked out the size of tissue and we capture most of it on that so periodically we will stop remove the object just fold the tissue in half make a little crease and pour that into a vial lay the tissue back out, put the object on and start again. So we've kind of worked out a capture system for the fallout of soil. So the foils that we've found are primarily just very small fragments of foil, like a millimetre. How do you go about cleaning something that small, and and since it's foil, obviously, that delicate? Now, the foils, you say, they're very difficult because probably, yeah, three millimetre by two millimetre is, you know, an average foil size, and we have, you know, a few loose ones. I have to say we're probably quite lucky in some respects because the foil usually sits behind the garnet, not a lot of dirt would necessarily have got onto it. So when they have become detached, usually it's got a very thin surface wash, almost of a, you know, like a soil deposit on it, like a clouding. And I have to say for now, we've just left it. And I think the way to clean those would be that you'd have to use a very soft brush or just very gently immerse them in a very shallow tray of deionized water and just let them sit there and let any dirt almost just dissolve off them. But what you need to be careful of is to see on the back of some of the foils, you have the residue of the paste and the packer that it was sitting on. So that's sometimes stuck on the back of the foil. And we're not sure whether the garnet just sat on the foil or whether there might have been a very thin layer of adhesive on there, which of course would have been clear at the beginning and maybe just fogs with age and moisture so that's another reason why we're not really cleaning them because we'd like other people to be able to look at that first and determine 
can that material be removed or not? Some of these foils have incredibly small details, very intricate microscopic details. Is that also something that we're just kind of leaving for right now because we don't want to damage? Or Yeah, at the moment, it, that will just all be left. Because just because of the time involved working on that, in some respects, we would say it's not the priority because you can still see that and appreciate it. But yet, as you say, the work on it, on the foils, is phenomenal because we look at them under high magnification. We've got up to 200 times. And you can take some fabulous pictures of the different foils. You know, we have picked up different styles of foils, like the standard waffle, just the crisscross. And then one where there's four squares within a square, five squares within a square. Um, So there's different patterns there, which I think does tie in with some of the um, types of foils they did find in Sutton Hoo. So it's certainly an area of research. But what we're doing is trying to take photos where we can of the different styles or different patterns. Like I say, we, we do them in a large magnification. When you put the scale on it and you see where the one millimetre is, and within one millimetre there are four smaller squares punched into that foil, and the foil's only three millimetres big in itself, you're just like, how do they do this? And sometimes you have to go back and check because you think, I must have got the scale wrong or the mag-, you know. And then you, you suddenly you take it out from under the microscope and you go, yeah, that's tiny. So it's, it's mind-blowing sometimes. Now, obviously, part of your, a major part of your job is to make sure that these objects are cleaned and, and preserved, but you're also somewhat on a treasure hunt looking for organics. Where's the best place to look for organics on these objects? The best place to look for the organics is on the inside of the objects, where we've got the pommel caps, hilt fittings, because they would have had running through them maybe a wooden support, an iron tang... And also within the inside of the pommel caps and some of the collars, because they're made of gold and silver, they're beautiful, but they're not necessarily that strong. So they have a copper core, a copper alloy core that gives them the strength. And when copper alloy um, deteriorates and mineralises, it tends to mineralise any organics that are adjacent to it. So that's where we would be looking very closely for any organic remains on the inside of the pommels, on the inside of the collars. Have we found any organics thus far? I mean, initially, there were a couple of objects where a small amount of wood was protruding from them. So they immediately went down to the British Museum um, so they can analyse them down there. Um, Subsequently, we've just started to clean the inside of objects. Initially, we just did the outsides because objects were required for display and for public and researchers to understand the patterns now we need to understand the structure and how they might fit together so we need to go to the inside of them so that's where we'll start to look for all our organics and that's where we're working on now so we're right on the cusp of finding out when this actually this hoard might actually be dated to um possibly the organics can help to date it but sometimes It's not that helpful. It only gives you a span of several hundred years, which is not so useful. But what it might tell you is the type of wood that was used, which the the researchers would find very interesting, how it's been used. Is it a similar material that has been used on other finds, like the Sutton Hoo? Is it comparable? So there's lots of things it might tell us that will help to date it rather than the material being able to help us date it. Several of the most iconic images from the hoard are quite damaged. Obviously, many people have seen the horse, 
but the folded cross, the Latin inscription, which is doubled over and folded, how does the process change and what are the challenges with cleaning and preserving something that is wrapped up like that? It's interesting, actually, because the folded cross was obviously one of the pieces that Terry, the founder, found. So by the time that reached our studios, that was clean. Now, we might have gone about it in a very different way, as in, you know, it's compacted, the soil in there. We may well have left it as a little ball of soil for an awful lot longer so that people could almost cogitate on the compactness of it. Also, we would have been able to x-ray it in its compact state to see what might have been inside there, if there'd been any organics or anything, just stuffed in there randomly. But with a lot of the the damaged pieces, it's just being aware of it, being careful, making sure you're, again, removing the soil, revealing them, but without causing a problem to the object. Because, as you say, the um, inscription is almost folded over in half, And if you've seen some of the photos, the gold alloy has actually split along that join. So when we're cleaning and removing soil, we're making sure that the object can actually support itself. Because if we take that soil out and that piece collapses on itself, that breaks, you've now got two pieces. So that's something we think about when we're looking at damaged objects. As we clean them, do we need to put some support in there? And with a couple of objects, we've found that the gold has become quite thin and there's um, a natural break where they've actually brought the two edges together. And as we remove the soil, we can see the cracks slightly opening. So again, we use some of our conservation adhesive and a tiny piece of Japanese tissue and make like a little plaster and just adhere that over the crack. So it gives it enough support to hold the object while we're cleaning it so it's almost invisible on the inside but actually supports the object. And is that plaster removed after you're done cleaning? Generally, we'll leave them because if it's got a hairline crack or damage, it needs that support generally. But what can be done at any point is our adhesives are reversible with usually a solvent like acetone, so we can remove that. If somebody needs to see that and examine that, we can do that. But because some of the objects are moving around and being handled and looked at by researchers, they need as much support as they, they can get. Now, you mentioned Terry Herbert, and he was the metal detectorist who found the hoard. And when he found many of those objects, he did wash them under a cold tap. And due to popular interest, there are a great number of people who are interested now in metal detecting. What should metal detectorists and hobbyists know when they're out there along Watling Street with their devices looking for buried treasure? Yeah. I mean, it's very difficult because when you're out there and you find something, it's very exciting. And you want to see what you found, so you clean it off with your thumb, see what's going on. But in an ideal world, in a sort of conservation-minded way, as soon as you kind of spot something in the soil or detect it, we would always lift a soil block. So even if it's only one little pommel cap, we would take the soil around it and lift it out in a little block so that then you can start to examine it and look at it at a slower pace. Because you don't know what's in the soil around it. That's where the organics might be. It might have been in a little leather bag. Now, the leather may well have almost completely deteriorated, but the shadow of that might be in the soil. And obviously that's a lot of information for the researchers. So that's why we would lift a block and then work our way through that. But obviously, you know, these guys are out there sometimes in the pouring rain, in the snow, you know, and they want to, if it's just one object, they want to just lift it, 
take it away. So it's understandable, but really, ideally, the minimum amount of cleaning as possible is great for conservators. Um, and also, I believe a lot of the detectorists now, because of um, iPhones and stuff, have been able to use GPS. Because obviously, where it's found is very important for the history of Britain and the researchers. And a lot of them now, it's been fantastic, they just GPS the site. And which is fantastic, a great way of recording it. But yeah, really minimal amount of work on an object is really the best way to go on a conservation aspect. And also, even if it's the detectorist, the finder themselves, you know, if, you, if they can lift it in the soil, you know, and even take it back to their own home like that, it's safer. But I can totally understand the, the desire and the urge and the excitement that you get when you find something, especially when it's gold, to probably just want to clean it and see what you've got. But, but there is evidence that could be lost, so if they bear that in mind, that would be helpful to society as a whole. One of our listeners, his name is Chris, was very much interested in, obviously, how long this whole process would take with restoration and preservation and the research, but he was also interested in knowing how much it would cost. And while we've discussed the process and the length of time, we haven't really talked about costs. So how much will this all cost and how is it paid for and how can people help? I mean, how long does um, it take to restore, conserve, preserve these? On average, we're looking at probably about 16 hours an object. Some are quicker, some take a lot longer. So it's quite a a lengthy process. Funding-wise, we were really lucky when the find was found As I said, I was an in-house conservator, so I was here, ready to go, take on the project. But for one person, way too big a project, so we needed a team set up. And unfortunately, obviously, at that time, the museum themselves just didn't have the funding for more staff. So um, National Geographic were hugely interested in the find, and maybe some of your viewers may have seen some of their documentaries that they've created about that. They came in uh, and offered to um, support the conservation team, so they actually gave us £150,000 and that's what was able to create the conservation team and also part of that went down to the British Museum so that it would fund some of the analysis. So without the external funders we would have been you know, much further behind than we are now. It would have been a very slow process. So, so in that respect external funding has been fantastic for this project. We have also public donations just to buy the hoard in the first place. But we've also had donations by the public towards conservation. We've had support from local trusts like the Cadbury's Trust from the chocolate firm. They've supported us and helped us to be able to purchase some of our equipment. And still the public are very interested and still donate into the donation boxes. So that helps anything to do with the Horde project, which is partly us as well. And we run open days. So every first Wednesday of every month, 10 people can book on a tour and come down to the studio and see the hall, talk to the conservators, but they pay £20 to do that, and all that money comes back to the conservation team. So that's fantastic that we're booked out year in, year out, and that's fantastic support. And just in case anyone's interested in doing that, that's here at the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. For our overseas listeners, where can they go to contribute and help donate to this project? Well, we have the main museum's websites, obviously Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, which is bmag.org.uk, 
and also the main Staffordshire Horde website, which is all the W's and then staffordshirehorde.org.uk. You'll find on both of those sites there'll be buttons where it says probably donate, find out more. And also on those sites there's conservation tabs, research tabs, so you can find out lots of information generally about the Horde. Well, I know you have a lot to take care of. We have quite a lot of, over 3,000 objects, and it takes about 20 hours per object. You've got a lot of work ahead of yeah. you. So I'll let you get back to work, but thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. That's okay. You're welcome. Okay, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach me at Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory. And you can go over to Twitter. Just search for at britishpodcast. And as always, we're also on the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click get involved, and click forums. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>